Hey, my name is Timothy Pig, lead pastor of Fellowship Church. I want to thank you for listening to Text Driven Podcast. Today, you are listening to one of our weekend messages at Fellowship Church. While we hope that this sermon encourages you in your walk with Jesus, we want to urge you to be part of a local church in your area. This sermon is certainly not a substitute for the encouragement you will receive from going to a local church. If you are living in Southwest Florida, we would love for you to visit us here at Fellowship Church. To find out times and locations, visit our website, www.fellowshipchurch.co. Well, good morning, church family. It is a delight to be with you today. I have looked forward to this now for some time, and I want to thank your pastor for his kind invitation to have me be a part of a great commission weekend and share with you and with so many others. It would not, I do not have the time to thank those or, or recognize those here that I know, some of whom were my students in the past and some who are colleagues in the ministry. And, and, uh, but I want, to, want you to know that I am grateful to be with you, thankful for the wonderful opportunity to preach the word, and I have been following what God is doing in your church. And I'm very grateful for Timothy's ministry here and the leadership that he is uh, giving here and to see the wonderful things that God is doing. Just to be a part of a church service to see three people baptized today. Do you, do you know and do you understand that there will be half of the churches in the Southern Baptist Convention? of 45,000 some churches, there'll be half of them that won't baptize three people in a single year, much less in one service. And so I'm so excited to be here and grateful for this wonderful, wonderful opportunity. Thank you, Pastor Pig, for the privilege of being with you and your people today and the kind words that you've said uh, about me as well. Let me invite you to join me in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. Many sermons are preached on Isaiah 6, and most all of them stop in verse 8. But the problem is the text does not end in verse 8. It actually goes through verse 13. And so today we want to consider all of Isaiah 6 because the whole is more than the sum of its parts, and you cannot fully know and understand what God is saying in the first eight verses of Isaiah 6 if you do not see what the Lord has to say in the verses that conclude at verse 13. Isaiah chapter 6. I want to ask you to pray a prayer this morning. This is the prayer. Lord, do anything in me you need to do in order to do everything through me you want to do. Lord, do anything in me you need to do in order to do everything through me you want to do. What does God want to do through you individually? And what does God want to do through your church? Well, would it shock you if I told you I know the answer to that question? Well, I know you feel like all of us from Texas, we're such arrogant people. How in the world could you possibly know that about me personally and your church? Well, in fact, I do. 
Because you see, the fact of the matter is, the answer to that question is God wants to do through you individually and through your church a whole lot more than he's ever done before. Are you willing to pray today, Lord, do anything in me you need to do in order to do everything through me you want to do? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, and two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called out to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who should I send? Who will go for us? I said, Here I am send me and he replied go say to these people keep listening but do not understand keep looking but do not perceive make the minds of these people dull deafen their ears blind their eyes otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their minds turn back and be healed then I said until when Lord and he replied until cities lie in ruins without inhabitants. Houses are without people. The land is ruined and desolate. And the Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. Though a tenth will remain in the land, it too will be burned again. Like the terebinth tree or the oak that leaves a stump when felled, the holy seed is the stump. How big is your God? How well do you know Him? How much are you like Him? How ready are you to serve Him? The young preacher Isaiah and his people in the 8th century B.C. were in a time of great tragedy and trouble and turmoil their great king Uzziah was dead Uzziah had reigned 52 years in the southern kingdom as king he died at the age of 68 his reign was the longest reign of all of the kings of Judah the southern kingdom to put that in perspective in our culture that would be the equivalent of us having a president of the United States from roughly Richard Nixon 
all the way to the conclusion of Donald W. Trump, Donald J. Trump. 52 years. The only president we would have ever known. The only king that Israel ever knew. The one man who had ruled for 52 years. Everyone 52 years of age and under knew only of their king. But now the king was dead. And you see, when this text begins in the year that King Uzziah died, we know that year was 740 B.C. But it is more than a date on a calendar. It is more than that. It is a description of political and spiritual circumstances. For during King Uzziah's reign, it was a time of prosperity. Uzziah had led the people to great prosperity, not since the days of Solomon had they seen such prosperity. He had raised up an army of 307,000 elite fighting men, subduing the Philistines over on the Mediterranean, the Amorites to the south, and the Edomites in the Arabian desert. He had rebuilt walls and strengthened the walls of Jerusalem. He built a port city down on the Gulf of Aqaba. And then he also built up storage cities in the southern desert. He championed agriculture, and he dug wells and developed aqueducts in order to provide enough water for the nation. It was an amazing time of prosperity. It was like the Dow Jones average had shot to over 34,000 in Judah. And it was like the Republican ad in 1928. There was a chicken in every pot and a car in every backyard. It was a time of prosperity, but it was also a time of uncertainty. You see, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the nation of Israel for 200 years had been divided after the death of King Solomon. The nation split northern kingdom, capital Samaria, southern kingdom, capital Judah, and the kings of the northern and southern kingdom had a love-hate relationship for 200 years. They would hate each other and go to war and fight each other. And then they would love each other when a foreign army was trying to come and take them over and they would sign a treaty with each other in order to defend each other from those foreign armies. But now the nation is divided in both land and leadership. And the uncertainty was right above the northern kingdom was a kingdom called Assyria. And Tiglath-Pileser III had taken the reins of Assyria and he was rattling his saber against the northern kingdom thinking about invasion and the people were living almost at wit's end. In fact from that moment, from this moment only 18 short years in the future would that saber rattling give way to the dull thud of boots on the ground as the Assyrian army would invade the northern kingdom sack the city of Samaria, kill thousands of Jews, take thousands more into slavery and exile, and the northern kingdom would be no more. It was a time of uncertainty. It was also a time in the year that King Uzziah died, 740 B.C., it was a time of superficiality. 
Idolatry was running rampant in the southern kingdom as well as in the northern kingdom. All the people would come to the temple on the Sabbath day and they would pay lip service to God. But during the week they would skulk away to the high places. You'll read about it in your Bible. Places of pagan Canaanite worship where the people would worship false gods and engage in sexual immorality and engage in idolatry in rebellion against their God. Their religion was a superficial religion. Can you imagine a better description of America today? Time of prosperity, time of uncertainty time of superficiality can you imagine and do you realize the superficiality in so many of our churches today that is evidenced in the songs that we sing the prayers that we pray and the kinds of sermons that we preach it is a time of superficiality and in the midst of all of these days in the year that King Uzziah died The nation was facing a tsunami of grief. The flag was flying at half-mast. There was chaos as people were fearful about the future. I can imagine old Isaiah, can't you? Young man, he is, young preacher, Isaiah. And he goes to the palace and he peers through the doors and there's an empty throne. He remembers the wonderful speeches that had been made, but now the great king's voice is silent. He goes over to the cemetery and he touches the cold slab over the body of his great king, but his heart's left just as cold and he finds no solace there. And then Isaiah goes to the temple. And there in the temple... Isaiah goes to church, and there at church, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. You see things in the night of sadness that you miss in the day of gladness. Some things that you perform, some activities require light. Plowing a field, performing an appendectomy, painting a picture requires light. But oh, the astronomer loves the darkness because in the night, the bright stars reveal their treasures to the astronomer. Isaiah learned things in the darkness that he could never learn in the light. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. When things become desperate, whom do you see? You know, some people can only see dictators and tyrants and drug lords and Putins and Kim Jong-uns and Chairman Z. And that's all they can see. Some people can only see Democrats. Others can only see Republicans. And that's all they can see. They're looking at an empty throne just like Isaiah. When they should be looking at an occupied throne. 
the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord. Earthly power passes from hand to hand. You got King James I, King James II, and so forth. King Charles I, King Charles II in history, and so forth. King Louis I, King Louis II, King Louis XIV. But have you noticed in the Bible that never do you read of God the first who then over time becomes decrepit as he ages and then fades off the scene and now we have to have a God the second? Do you notice that we never have that in the Bible? No, what we have is God the first, God the last, God the only. The Alpha and the Omega. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord. He has one telescope by which he sees all things, his omniscience. He has one bridge by which he crosses all things, his omnipresence. And he has one hammer by which he breaks all things, his omnipotence. He is God and God alone. And more than anything else today, you need to see Him. More than anything else in my life today, I need to see Him. I don't need to look at an empty throne, Isaiah. I need to see an occupied throne. I need to see an eternal throne. And that's what you need. And that's what I need. And that's what our churches need. A fresh vision of God. We are hindered from seeing God. Because we are focused on empty thrones and our unconfessed sin in our lives keeps us from seeing clearly our holy God. In the year King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord. Isaiah went to church. He he made his way up the long stairs to the temple precincts to worship to encourage his sorrowful heart and he heard the antiphonal singing of the Levites which was common in the worship service and he could see the smoke of the altar burnt offering and he saw the sights and the sounds and smelled the smells of the temple and suddenly the temple scene receded And instead of an earthly temple, Isaiah was in a heavenly temple by vision. And instead of earthly Levitical choir singing, Isaiah heard the seraphim calling back and forth, holy, holy, holy. And instead of an earthly throne, Isaiah saw a heavenly throne and God himself upon that throne. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and a lofty throne and the hem of his robe filled the temple kings wore regal robes that were often very long in terms of the train of those robes and the word that's used here hem doesn't even mean the long train it means the little fringe that's on the end of that train look at what is said it's amazing Just the fringe on the hem of the robe of Almighty God filled the temple. And not only did Isaiah see this, Isaiah 
saw something else. In verse 2, seraphim were standing above him. I don't know how he knew they were seraphim. They're not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. And as far as I know, they weren't wearing name tags. But somehow Isaiah understood those are the burning ones, which is what the word in Hebrew means. One seraph, multiple seraphim. If you add the I-M on any Hebrew word, that's how you make it plural. And so we don't know how many seraphim he saw, but there were at least two. There may have been many more. But the seraphim are, are an order of angels, the burning ones. And Isaiah sees seraphim standing above this throne of God. And he describes what he sees. They each had six wings. Now, does that strike you as a little odd? Two are enough. Right? I saw that beautiful hawk yesterday through these windows when I was seated over there as he was gliding effortlessly in the sky with his two beautiful pinions. Seems redundant to have six, but look at why. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet, and with two, they were flying. This is emblematic of their reverence in the presence of a holy God. They cover their faces because in the presence of the God who is omniscient, they are veiling their limited knowledge. They cover their feet because in the Bible, feet are symbolic of governmental authority. And in the presence of the supreme ruler of the universe, they veil their feet. And then with two, they are flying at a moment's notice, doing in obedience the bid of their king, whatever the Lord says for them to do. And they are flying and the reference in Hebrew makes it clear, back and forth, back and forth, are they so doing? And then Isaiah heard something in verse 3. And one called to another, Kadosh, 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 holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. I find it interesting that it's repeated three times. Because you see, that would be the way of expressing the superlative idea. You and I express the superlative with good, better, and best. Or if you really want to highlight and emphasize something, what do you do? You underline it, bold it. Instead of 12-point type, you make it 16-point type. And that's what, the, what is being, Isaiah is doing as he sees and as he hears the seraphim calling out, not once but three times, holy, holy, holy. Interesting, he doesn't call out love, 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 or justice, justice, justice. Those two are attributes of God. But no, it seems that the supreme attribute that is focused on in the book of Isaiah is the holiness of God. And not only that, underneath are little markings of each of these words that indicate these words were spoken by the seraphim with ascending volume. And I heard the seraphim say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. 
26 times in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah refers to God as the Holy One of Israel. This event marked him and his ministry. From here on out, God is the Holy One of Israel. Like Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, the refrain over and over and over again. This terminology, the Holy One of Israel, more than all of the other attributes of God put with His name, this one more than all of them. He is the Holy One of Israel. There is no greater need you have this morning. There is no greater need I have this morning. There is no greater need our churches have this morning. And there is no greater need our nation has this morning. No greater need our world has this morning than a fresh encounter with our holy God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Oh, but look. Not only that, but Isaiah hears, His glory fills all the earth. The Hebrew word for holy is kadosh. It means totally set apart, altogether unique, pristine, pure, not a scintilla of sin anywhere. If God did not shield you, if He were to appear in all of His holiness and did not shield you from his righteousness and his holiness it would be the equivalent of detonating a 100 megaton bomb 100 feet above your head in a millisecond you would be annihilated by his holiness but the blood of Christ intervenes between a holy God and a sinful man Holy, holy, holy is the Lord our God. The whole earth is full of His glory. The Hebrew word holy is kadosh. The Hebrew word glory is kavod. And there's a play on words and the sound. Every Jewish person listening, reading this, hearing this talk, understood the comparison, the symmetry, or the, the phonology, the similarity of God's kadosh and God's kavod. And the Hebrew word kavod, root, the root of the word, means to be heavy. God is the heaviest thing in the universe. He weighs more than anything. He's more important than anything. If you were around in the 1960s when we had hippies and you would hear them talk about, they would listen to somebody say something profound and then the hippie would say, man, that's heavy, heavy man, heavy. <laughs> Some of you know what I'm talking about because you're old enough to remember that. Some of you were those hippies in the 1960s now and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Folks, God is glorious. God is heavy. He has weight. He has power. He has authority. And notice this. The whole earth is full of God's glory. That means that God's omnipresence is everywhere. And God's providential care is everywhere. And God's imminence. He's not just some transcendent God who made up the world, wound it up, and let it go, and then he absconded into nowhere. No, he is a God who is involved deeply in his world. The glory of the Lord is everywhere. I see it, don't you, in the monarch butterfly? The rare tropical fish. I see it in the majestic 
Rockies. I see it in a California redwood. I see it in a Florida sunset. I see it in the orbit of planets. And I see it in the orbit of neutrons in the nucleus of an atom. And everywhere I look, whether it's the macrocosm or the microcosm, I see the glory of God. His glory is filling all of the earth. And not only that, verse 4, at the voice of these angels pronouncing God as holy, the foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices. The temple was filling with smoke. The reverberation of the sound, the decibel level of the seraphim calling out about the holiness of God was such that the massive pillars of the earthly temple and the pillars even of God's heavenly temple shook with the reverberation. The bronze gates at the temple in Jerusalem in the first century were so huge, set in their sockets, that it took 20 men to open and close those gates. And just at the voice of seraphim, the foundations of the temple shake. And not only that, the temple is filled with smoke. The altar of incense in the holy place gives that white smoke and it fills when the high priest and the priests are in there doing their duty it gives that smoke and it fills the temple when Solomon dedicated the temple God's presence showed up and the preachers had to leave because the smoke of God's holiness and his righteousness and his presence filled the temple when it was dedicated and none of the priests could go in for a while because the house of God is God's house it filled with smoke and now, after seeing things and hearing things and, and smelling things, Isaiah is ready to speak in verse 5. Then I said, wow, wow, this is wonderful. We're in the presence of God. Let's strike up the praise band and let's boogie down. Wow, wow, now we can really worship. Wow. Is that what Isaiah says? No. When you come in contact with a holy God, you don't say, wow. You say, woe is me. Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am ruined. It's not wow, it's woe. Now, don't misunderstand me. God wants you to have the wow of worship. But hear me when I say, you cannot have the wow unless you have the woe. Isaiah is the best man of his day, the young preacher. He's a paragon of virtue. Six times in the previous chapter, five, go mark them, he just got through preaching a hellfire and damnation sermon to the kingdom. 
And what does he do but in verse 8, verse 11, verse 18, verse 20, verse 21, and verse 22, six times he says, woe to my people. And now number seven, in the presence of a holy God, the preacher himself, the paragon of virtue falls at the feet of the King of kings and Lord of lords and declares, woe is me. You want to have the wow? You better have the woe. You want to have the wow in your church? You better have the woe first. Woe is me. Why? Because he's in the presence of a holy God. And notice what he says. Woe is me for I am ruined. That word ruined in Hebrew means to come unraveled. It's the picture of Wiley Coyote who can't get away, can't defeat the roadrunner, and he keeps constantly getting into trouble. And one of the scenes when finally Wiley Coyote, something happens to him, and the cartoonist, he just totally unravels from his head to his feet. He just, he just unravels, and all that's left is a bunch of thread or string on the ground. That's what Isaiah says, I am undone. I am unraveled. I'm a goner. I'm a dead duck. I'm dead. There's no hope for me. I can't come into the presence of a holy God and live. Woe is me because I am a man of unclean lips. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Why didn't he say unclean heart? He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. He could have said, I'm a man of an unclean heart. Jesus said, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Have you ever in all of your days heard more coarse, vulgar, nasty discourse that permeates our homes, our society, our government, and everywhere else, our music? I am a man of unclean lips. And not only that, I dwell amongst, amidst a people of unclean lips. You see, sin is not only personal, it's also social. Sin is personal, but it's also social. I'm from the state of Texas. Walk up and down the state of Texas and imagine that from Longview to El Paso, from Houston to Dallas, there's not a soul there. You're the only one. You walk across the entire state of Texas. No one is there. The current population, not a soul in Texas. Let's do the same for the great state of Florida, from the panhandle to the Keys. Up and down both coasts, the population of Florida is suddenly gone. No one there. Let us do the same for the state of Illinois. Great, mighty Chicago and walk up and down the great state of Illinois and there's not a soul there. And if you were to do that and that were to be the case, then you would have an understanding of the combined population of three states of 60 million people that would be how many unborn children have been put to death in their mother's wombs since 1973 in this nation. And that's just for starters. Now, that's our greatest sin. 
Shall I tick off the litany of the sins of us individually and the sins of our churches and the sins of our nation? Did you know that the past, the Old Testament says, God says that our righteousness is like filthy rags before God? Did you get that? I want to ask you a question. If your righteousness and my righteousness in the, the best we can do in the presence of God is filthy rags. What do you think our sin looks like to Him? In the presence of a holy God. Isaiah cries out, Woe is me. I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. Because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I can't live. I can't survive. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me. And in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. Taken probably from the altar of incense in the holy place. Where the hot coals were kept and the incense was placed daily by the priests. And the white smoke would fill the room and the beautiful aroma, the sweet aroma of the incense. And here, there's a glowing coal from that altar that one of the seraphim takes. And he approaches Isaiah with it. And in his vision, I wonder if as the angel with the tongs and the glowing coal, the hot coal, approaches Isaiah's lips, I wonder if he winces in expectation of searing pain. And yet in his vision, when that hot coal touches his sinful lips, instead of searing pain, there is wonderful, sweet forgiveness and release. Look at it. One of the seraphim flew to me with that glowing coal that he had taken. And he touched my mouth. And when he did, he said, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is removed. Your sin is atoned for. Oh, there is so much in that passage of Scripture. Do not miss it. There is the touching of the lips, which is where God ministers to the sinner at the point of contact of their sin. Notice there was nothing Isaiah could do to deal with his sin any more than there's anything you can do to deal with your sin. If you are saved, as we sang about it this morning, you are saved by grace. God is the one who saves you. God is the one who initiates salvation. It's his salvation. You didn't think it up. You didn't do anything to earn it. God initiates you and touches you at the point of your confessed need. And the effect is instantaneous. Notice the text says, touched and removed. Coordinate in the Hebrew language. The moment it touched, your sin and iniquity was removed. Look at the comprehensive nature of this salvation. Your iniquity, the word means willful perversion. It describes the inner nature of your sin. And then your sin is a word in Hebrew that describes the outward acts of your sin. Both that inward nature, outward act. You're now, you have been atoned for based upon an effective payment of a price. And that's the meaning of the word atone here. It's the Hebrew word that's the dominant, single, most important word for atonement in the Old Testament. And it means to cover. To cover your sin. There's an atonement that has covered your sin. It's like if we go to lunch today and 
I want to buy Brother Tim his lunch to say thank you for having me here. And I reach into my billfold and I realize, oh my goodness, I don't have any cash there. And I gave my credit cards to Kate, my wife, and I don't have it. I have no way of paying for his lunch. And I'm totally humiliated and I'm embarrassed. But Tim says, hey, don't worry about it, David. I've got you covered. And he pulls out his wallet and he pays for my meal. That's sort of the picture that is drawn here, except it's, it's about made into a million times more potent in the covering of our sin. There's an atonement that has covered, paid the price for our sin. And you and I know that that atonement is the blood of Christ on the cross. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? There is an atonement for our sin. The profound awareness of God brings a painful awareness of our sin. But now there is cleansing. Now there is forgiveness because God says to Isaiah, you've got filthy lips, boy, but I've got you covered. I've got you covered. If sin is to be dealt with, it has to be dealt with drastically. God didn't tell Isaiah to take a bath, change his clothes, get more education. No, he said your sin has got to be atoned for. God takes the initiative in dealing with the sinner, the vision that cursed him, now the fire that cleanses him. And now, in the midst of this overwhelming glory of God, comes an overwhelming vision of the grace of God. The glory of God and the grace of God. And Isaiah experiences God's holiness and his own sinfulness. And now his cleansing and salvation. And then Isaiah has a vision and understanding of the world's lostness. So in verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who should I send? Who will go for us? Interesting, us could be the plural of majesty, a common Hebrew way of expressing things. But actually, it's more likely a reference, an Old Testament reference to the Trinity. Who shall go for us? Because who is the speaker in Isaiah 6? The speaker is God, Adonai, term, his name used three times. But if you read John chapter 12, verse 41, for the sake of time, I'll not take you there, you will discover Jesus talks about this text of Scripture, and he says, Isaiah spoke about me. And then if you read Paul's final words in the book of Acts at Rome, Paul quotes this text of Scripture as well and says, as the Holy Spirit said. So in Isaiah, it's God. In John 12, it's Jesus. And in Acts 28, it's the Holy Spirit. It's all three. There is a reference in the Old Testament to the Trinity right here. Whom shall I send who will go for us? Who will go for us? And then Isaiah can finally speak to God. Here am I, send me. Five words in English, two only in the Hebrew text. Literally, hear me, here am I, hear me, send me. But there are only two words in Hebrew. Hear me, send me. You don't need a long, drawn-out dialogue with God because you don't jabber with God. Hear me. 
send me. Hmm. Now God replies. Here where all the sermons end right here. But the text is not through. And he replied, go, God says. Say to these people, keep listening but don't understand. Keep looking, don't perceive. Make the minds of these people dull, deafen their ears, blind their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts. Turn back and be healed. Oh, the irony. God says, my people Israel have hardened their own hearts and therefore I will harden their hearts such that they will not believe. God will harden what you harden finally. You see, the more you reject God, those of you that are listening to me and you're not a Christian, the more you reject God, the easier it is to reject God. The harder your heart becomes in the process until finally you cross God's deadline. You go past the point of no return and your heart is hardened by yourself and by God and you will never come to Him. And so, what does God do? He gives Isaiah a message that what Isaiah the preacher can expect in his preaching is resistance. Resistance. Resistance that will aggravate and accelerate the process of hardening in the very people to whom he is preaching. Now look, I don't know this church, so I'm not speaking of you because I don't know you, but I want to tell you this, I'm 64 years of age, I've been around the block a couple of times and I've preached in a few churches, and I am seeing as time goes by a increasing hardness among the people of God to the preaching of the Word of God. The kind of things that used to bring people in tears to an altar puts them to sleep because they keep looking at their watch and they're wanting to know when will church be over? How about them cowboys? And there is a growing hardness in churches in America today. They're not listening to the Word of God. And Isaiah is told by God, in fact, Isaiah is given a, va a divine vaccination because what, I, what God does to Isaiah is he says, Isaiah, you're going to preach and your ministry is not going to be a Billy Graham ministry. Your ministry is going to be a failure. And in fact, if tradition is true, they're going to saw you in half at the end. They're not going to listen to you and they're going to put you to death. And so Isaiah, I need to give you an inoculation, a vaccination, so that you won't be discouraged, so that you will be faithful to me. How preachers need to hear this. I wish I had the time to develop this for preachers today. A divine vaccination, Isaiah, this is what it's going to be like. People are going to harden their hearts. They're not going to listen to you. But preach on anyway. God lit a fuse that was 150 years long here with Isaiah Isaiah would preach all of his ministry. The majority of people would reject him. He would lay down. Micah would come and take up the baton and preach for a while. Then he would lie down. And then Jeremiah would come. And at the end of Jeremiah's ministry, the bomb, the explosion of God's judgment on the southern kingdom would go off. And Babylon would swoop in and take them away, kill thousands, take thousands of more into captivity. And for 70 years would they languish in captivity before any would be allowed to return to their homeland. Why? Because they did not acknowledge the holiness of God. Don't think for one minute 
that if God's chosen people, Israel, face that kind of judgment from him because of their idolatry and their immorality and their sin, that somehow God is going to overlook good old boy America and not judge her for her sins. Do not make that mistake for one minute. Resistance. Which leads to ruin. Verse 11. How long, Lord? Until when, Lord? Isaiah says, well, how long do I have to preach like that? And what's going to be the result? And listen to the words. Until cities lie in ruins. Without inhabitants. Houses without people. The land is ruined to desolate. The Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. Remember the scenes that we periodically observe of Pripyat, the Ukrainian city, where August the 26th, 1986, after the Chernobyl disaster, 40,000 people in their city had to be forcibly evacuated because of killer radiation. They still show the scenes. They'll go back and somebody will take pictures. We'll see the videos of rusting children's swing sets and apartment buildings looming over silent streets. And all you can hear is the wind. And Isaiah is told by God that that day is coming to Israel. Because they refuse to repent. That day of judgment is coming to Israel. But now watch it. Though a tenth will remain, verse 13, though a tenth will remain in the land, a tithe, 10%, we're going to stay in the land, Yet it will be burned again. They're still going to face problems even after the exile and after they return. And you know, if you do the population studies of what we could read of based on what Nehemiah says, how many returned based on how many were in the land, about 10% returned, just as God says. A tenth will remain. Years later, down the road, after the exile, the return, about a tenth. About 47,000 returned, about one-tenth of who was there. Like the terebinth tree or the oak tree that leaves a stump when felled, the holy seed is the stump. Now stay with me just three more minutes. Have you ever watched them chop down a big old tree? A big oak tree? And then you... They leave the stump two to three feet above the ground. And then two or three or four years later, you wander by, and what do you see out of that stump? What's growing? Why, there's a little greenery there. Why, there's a little shoot coming up out of that stump. You know what God is saying to Isaiah and to us? Hope is always the fringe of the garment of God's judgment. He's not going to wipe them out completely. He will fulfill His promises. And so like that oak tree that is felled, the holy seed, that's a reference to Israel in Ezra 9.10, but it's also a reference in Isaiah 11.1 1, to the coming Messiah. The holy seed is none other than Jesus. He is the shoot that rises up out of Jesse. God has a plan. When it looks like judgment has come and erased everything, 
400 years of silence from AD, from BC 400, no writing prophet in Israel for 400 years. And the Jews probably thought, God has forsaken us. He's finally had it. He's, we're, he's tired of our sin. And yet little did they understand the next event on God's prophetic calendar was the birth of Jesus. Don't you ever mistake the silence of God in your life for the indifference of God to your life. Don't make that mistake. God, holy, judges, yes, but here is redemption. Here is a picture of Jesus, the Messiah who God, whom God sends. Not only that, to reclaim Israel, but to be a Savior for all of the world, all of the rest of us as well. More than anything today. Do you need and do I need a fresh vision of the holiness of God? How well, how big is your God? How well do you know Him? How much are you like Him? How ready are you to serve Him? Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Holy Father, we come now to the time of response. Having heard your word, and now, oh God, we must respond to your word. Father, would you now move upon every heart? Lord, I pray for the unsaved person who might be sitting in this building today that they would come to Christ. Father, I pray for the many Christians. Most of us are believers here today. And yet, Lord, we need a fresh touch of the burning coal upon our lips and Lord, I pray during this invitation, during this response, that people either there in the pew, there in their chairs, or here at this altar might just come and kneel and talk to you and then go back to their seat. But Lord, let us do business with God. Father, may the people have meant it when they prayed today, Lord, do anything in me you need to do in order to do everything through me you want to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand right now? And would you do business with God? The pastor's here at the front. The prayer altar is here. Let's do business with God right now, shall we? Whatever decisions need to be made, this is your time. Your time to come right now. Would you do it?